Hello everybody, Lachlan here. Just before we start this episode, I thought I might point out that this is one year since Sabbath School from Home started. For most of us, church life is back close to normal. It's unlikely that we're going to need to go back to doing Sabbath School from home quite the way that we were a year ago. However, we really love doing this podcast. We enjoy the conversations and we enjoy hearing the positive feedback and I know that a number of you do find this valuable. So given that things have changed a bit, we're going to change the podcast just slightly. We're going to try and shift our publication schedule from Friday afternoon to earlier in the week. We'll aim for a Wednesday midweek publication so that you have time to listen to this podcast before you go and participate in your Sabbath school communities on Sabbath morning. It's just possible that some of the ideas that we bounce around or come up with or discover in the course of this podcast might be fruitful for seeding actual conversations in your Sabbath schools. So thank you for joining us over the last year. And we hope that there are ways that this podcast might still be able to serve, provide a blessing, and maybe even be helpful as we move closer towards a post-pandemic world. Now, let's get on to this interesting episode and this new quarter. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you're here with us for another season, another quarter. And this one's going to be a very interesting one. Uh, we've just had a, a pre-recording discussion to sort of map out where we might go. And there's, there's too many interesting ideas in this topic, talking about God's covenant. And uh, we're going to start where the Bible starts uh, in Genesis 1. Thank you for joining us. My name's Cameron, talking to you now from Launceston in Tasmania. G'day, I'm Ken. Uh, recently arrived back from Melbourne. Uh, in fact, about half an hour ago. Uh, but back in Launceston. And I'm Luke. I've uh, emerged from the ark up here in New South Wales and the floodwaters have receded. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Lachlan, also in increasingly dry New South Wales. Oh, that's good. And uh, our thoughts, obviously, with the people who've, who've uh, perhaps don't have their, their homes to emerge from. And uh, it's certainly been a bit of a, a wild time. Uh, before we get on to stories of floods, we're going to start a bit earlier in, in Genesis and look at Genesis chapter 1. It's a, it's a story we know well, or at least uh, it's a story we, we talk about often. And obviously we know what this means, isn't that right? There's a perfect world and then it all goes wrong. And uh, we may have some thoughts on that interpretation as we proceed. But let's let's jump into Genesis chapter 1. What's the broad pattern? What's the, what's the structure of uh, Genesis 1? I, I would say the most obvious structure is the days. Yeah. And God goes through uh, his creative acts uh, day by day. The chapter begins with a sort of an introductory statement. And uh, even that introduces some of the ideas that, that emerge. So in the beginning, which is a statement about time, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a statement about space. This is going to be about time and space. And in fact, the, the crowning act of creation is, is a special day. It's, spe- it's a special time, hmm. is, is, the, is the conclusion. Uh, so it's not just about creation of the world we live in, uh, the physical things. Uh, there's, there's more elements to it than that. 
if I can just jump in there, Cam, you, you've already made one statement, which I agree with, but may even be contentious. The crowning act of the creation week being Sabbath. It's interesting to note that even in the history of the Adventist denomination, there's been a pretty regular um, idea that the cr- humans are the crowning act of creation. And it is striking, isn't it, that even amongst people who celebrate the Seventh-day Sabbath, uh, there can be a a slight missing of that emphasis, which I believe is so clear in this first chapter of Genesis. We'll we'll get to it, but I think there's a very compelling case that the chapter break is just has been put in the wrong place. Mm. Uh, that the first couple of verses of chapter two actually conclude what's happening in chapter one. There is a natural break, but we've just not in in our allocation of verses and chapters chosen chosen a good spot. Halfway through verse four of chapter two. Yeah, well, let's have a look at it while we're here, because the very first says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then if we look at... um, Chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So there we go. There's a nice full stop. That's the end. Yeah. And then... Exactly. uh, In that day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, where no planet field was yet in the earth. So we then we start the story again. Uh, So we start the story again, exactly. So... So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2, verse 4, that's what happened when God created the heavens and the earth. There's a little tie-off sentence. So, And even chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished mm. his work that he had done and he rested. So the Sabbath features in those first two or three verses of chapter 2, yeah. but it's part of the, in fact, it is the, the climax point of the creation week of genesis one well that's one mm. way of looking at it i mean you could also look at it and say finished it the day before and uh, the day after he just didn't do anything he'd finished um <laughs> <laughs> well i i mean that that could indeed be why the the verses the chapter is broken there because six days shall you labor and on the seventh day you rest yeah yeah interesting what does your translation say uh, mine says in chapter 2, verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Mine says by the seventh day. My New Living Translation says on as well. Yeah, the NRSV says on also. Well, but it says on the seventh day, God had finished his work. Ah. ah. There is a fairly serious inconsistency between English translations in this particular nuance. And my understanding is because it, it arises because of a, a certain amount of inevitable ambiguity in the way this is rendered in Hebrew um, as to whether it is finished by the seventh day or on the seventh day. In other cases, it's clear that though God has finished building physical things, he can just finish building the things he can see and touch, but he's not finished doing everything he wants to do. Yes. He wants to have a rest. He wants to have a rest. And... That's that's certainly you know a climactic moment of this account. Uh, in these days, uh, there's a pattern of of what happens. God says something, and then it happens, and God gives labels or names to the things that have happened, and then he um, then he says that it's good, and then it's morning and evening, and then it's the end of the day. Have I have I left anything out? Uh. Well, I was just going through, I was just looking at the second day. Yeah. And I didn't see anywhere in that second day where he said it was good, when he separated the waters from the waters. 
That's Monday Cannon. Who would say that <laughs> Who would say that Monday is good? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, there you go. That's, I'm actually That's very the... blessed to enjoy my work, and I do actually look forward to Monday to go to work. But yeah. Anyway, I might be in the uh, in the minority there. Uh. It's the first point. This I only found this out as as a very late teenager, having grown up in an Adventist in a Christian denomination that places great stress on studying the Bible um, and on particularly the creation account. Uh, our listeners ought to grab a Bible now and turn to the creation account. God never says that the second day is good. Some other days get, get told that they're good twice. Which days get told that they're good twice? And some are very good. Well, one of them is very good. Yes, that is true. Day three is good twice, and day six is very good. Now, there's a book that was put on a reading list of a subject at Avondale, and it's by um, Lawrence Turner, who's a Hebrew scholar, and it's uh, called Back to the present but i don't think it's in print anymore lock do you know if it's in print oh i don't i know that i have two copies because before we were married i bought one and my wife bought one they're very good uh how many times this is a point that lawrence turner makes how many times does god say something is good in the account does that include the very good includes the very good well is it still seven times it's just that he said it twice for one it's twice for two because he doesn't say Uh, it on on sabbath mm. So he leaves Monday, gets left out, and Sabbath gets left out, but two other days get, it's said twice. The sixth day gets a good and a very good because he makes the animals on land and they're good and then he makes people yeah. and it's very good. And that's both on the sixth day, which I always mm. misremember. I always assume people get a whole day to themselves, but we, we, did, we don't in, that, in Genesis 1. That's part of this um, reading of it where humanity are the most important thing. Right. Which, which I, I don't think is super strongly supported no. by the text. And God says something is good seven times, and the seventh time is very good. Mm. And numbers mattered hugely to Hebrew storytellers. Either we have to accept that God genuinely didn't think that Monday was worth any you know, praise, or we accept the fact that the person who's written this account has adjusted it slightly to add numerical significance. Like, people, there's something very deeply embedded in our psyche about numbers. It's very telling, for instance, that people with, oh, what's the um, mental illness, where you're really incredibly anxious and you go through these rituals to help... OCD. Obsessive compulsive disorder? Mm-hmm. It's, they'll often pick a number. Mm. People often have lucky numbers and unlucky numbers and airlines leave off there's no row 13 and there's there's something weird about the way numbers tap into our psyche and for the hebrews it was the number seven was incredibly significant and it was mm. it's possible that it was just important for the author to ensure that god said it was good seven times to show how good it was well why not why not just include monday and saturday as the good days rather than having to adjust them like that <laughs> it is interesting and if we take the account of Genesis 1 to be as significant as the Adventist church traditionally views it to be, then we have to take seriously some of these details. I absolutely think it is um, completely uh, and justifiably as important as Seventh-day Adventists say it is. I'm just not so persuaded that the way that we as Seventh-day Adventists read it 
is always the right way. Yeah. Um, so, so it is a hundred. It, it is completely important, and I'm sure you weren't saying it wasn't. No, you picked yeah. you picked my meaning a hundred percent correctly, and I would I would remind uh, listeners at this point about how we talked. It was either last week or the week before when we were looking at Isaiah about how if the Bible is supposed to speak to every single person in the incredibly diverse audience that the Bible has, it must have nuance of meaning. It must have multiple meanings. And yeah. it's, it's, I would say, taking that a little bit further, it's dangerously oversimplifying things to say this is the one and only meaning of yeah. this passage, this chapter, this book, what have you. Um, because oversimplifying anything is the same, is, is essentially it becomes so inaccurate that it's just a falsehood. What's hinted at, or not hinted at, what's what's spelled out through this narrative is the fact that there is purpose, and the purpose is relationship, and that's what the Sabbath represents. So, so it is the case that where our worldview is different from Genesis, we may learn from it, but we have to be very clear about what it is that are the essential points maintained by the author. And I'll, I'll give you an example I think that the Bible's fairly clear that we should feed the hungry. But when I want to learn how to cook a lasagna, I don't read the Bible. And those two levels at which a text can speak to you need to be referred to more often when we read mm. the Bible. That, that the thing in the Bible is absolutely essential truth. Mm. And yet at a different level, it's possible for the thing in the Bible to be irrelevant. So, so when it says we feed the hungry, it doesn't mean I go and thresh wheat and follow the, the agricultural um, processes and the, and the cuisine. And, you know, I don't go kill a cow, for instance, like Abraham did. Um, I don't have to try and read the Bible at that level. Now you come to mention it, Ken, the Bible's a pretty bad recipe book in general. It's much less useful in the kitchen than I first thought. Yeah. But it is. But there's some essential. So, for instance, principles of health and looking after our, mm. our bodies, which is something Adventists are very strong on. Um, in fact, we do this all in in the area of health very very easily. We we are really comfortable going to the Bible and saying it's trying to teach us this deep and significant and eternal truth. And the particulars at various times and places, you know, God God, you know, allows people to to um, eat meat. In fact, He sends quails. And provides meat on various occasions in various ways. But we think that in our current circumstances, with what's available to us, the underlying truth is best expressed through a vegetarian diet. Like we 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 separate the particulars from the essential message without without any qualms. But but we have a huge amount of trouble trying to Well, we don't. <laughs> we we are hesitant we are hesitant to even suggest that there might be different layers of the same sort in the book of Genesis. Look, I'm just, I'm just going to name this up for it, Cam, because the, the point that you make, I think, is a good one. And I'm just going to name it for what it is. Because what we say is, unless you read this at the level of saying, uh, this account is an account of a literal, uh, and I hesitate to use that word because it has all sorts of ambiguity in it as well, but an account of a uh, manufacturing uh, a mechanical manufacturing of the world uh, in seven literal 24-hour days of a week as we now know it, you have entirely missed the meaning of this passage. The way that it, that, Ken, is more 
commonly expressed in Adventism at the moment, is that it is impossible for the Sabbath to hold all of its meanings and purpose if Genesis is not literal, is, mm. is, not, is not a second-hand account of factual details of a literal event that occurred in exactly the way the thing that it was described. Is, and there are two non-seconders in that, but we'll come back to it after Cam said his bit. <laughs> the, th- the thing is that I don't worship God because he made the world in seven days. Uh, that's in the same way that if you if you knew that um, I don't worship Christ because he was a carpenter, I don't. It's 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 who he, who God is as a person. It's who he is that is deserving of worship. The motivation yeah. behind the Sabbath is is the person of God, who he is, mm. and that finds expression in this passage. We find in this passage that God is powerful. That God is deliberate. That his creation is not accidental, that God is not indifferent, that he wants relationship with his creation. This is pulled out a lot more in Genesis chapter 2, which we haven't gotten to. But, yeah. but there's, there's different sides to God's character, which it, it genuinely, and I, I'm, I'm a reasonably scientifically curious person. I think that's fair to say. It genuinely doesn't bother me how old the earth is. There's nothing I care about less. It just doesn't bother me. I've ne- I've never gone and dug up a rock and looked for a fossil. I've never I've never I've never cared about it enough to spend to go in my spare time and borrow a book from the library and read on the topic. I just I just don't care about it. I I do care a lot about whether there is meaning behind the world that I'm living in, about about whether there is a God who cares. I mean, those things really matter to me, and I find the Book of Genesis speaks to me very strongly, and I, I'm just not. It's not. I just don't think the questions that we dwell on are worth mm. asking. They just don't bother me. Lachlan will recall, Cam, that I've expressed a similar, very similar sentiment to that for about yeah. twenty-five years. <laughs> right. <laughs> to him on various occasions. I just don't understand why I should care how long it took. It doesn't matter. This is getting to the heart of why we are looking at Genesis, the opening chapters of the Bible, at the start of a quarter about God's promise and God's covenant. Because Genesis is framing. It's, it's, it's placed here at this very start of the Bible just because of the ordering of the books as they've been compiled. But in its, in its writing, it is very clearly a framing narrative that helps you make sense of the world. And you need to have the basic picture making sense if you're going to then find it useful to explore the idea of God's covenant. So the the Bible study guide that we're following through this quarter is of, is very naturally opening with an examination mm. of stories here in Genesis, as are we. And we're commenting on the its power as a um as a description of a universe with meaning, with order, with a loving God seeking relationship. Just before we move out of Genesis one, I I would like to pick up on this word good, Cam. You've 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 explored the the counting of it. I wanted to come to this too, lot. It's good, and then it's very good at the end. But my question is, where does Genesis describe this Edenic creation as being perfect? And what does perfect mean? So, for instance, when when Galileo first noticed that there were craters on the moon, he was he was uh, denounced. From mm. many pulpits, because how could there be any defect? Or more importantly, how could there be any sign 
of process and change in the because the fall was sins restricted to planet Earth and and the moon's mm. meant to be perfect along with the rest of God's creation and if it is perfect by definition it cannot change because if you're at the top there's only one way to go and that's downhill so at various times people have had different views about perfection but certainly one of them has been that perfect requires things to not change indeed we refer to God as perfect and we rely on the concept that uh, he never changes uh, to establish his perfection. We, we see those things as being uh, one, one of the same thing. Here's an interesting side thought, and we could distract ourselves with this, I suspect, for the rest of the podcast, so let's not do that. But theoretically, can you conceive of something which is perfect and changing? Well, why not? Why can it not be as perfect as it can possibly be now and then in the next moment be even better? Um, so, Luke, I think the answer to your question is very simply that uh, a Hebrew mind could, and they wouldn't have used the did. word perfect, they would have used the word good, and that's what they did. Mm. A Greek mind couldn't. And the, the, the concept, when we use the word perfect, we import yeah. into the Bible a very... Um, Greek philosophical construction that wasn't at all part. It, it's not that the it's not that the Genesis author chose to use the word good instead of the word perfect. It's that the Genesis author did not have a picture of the world that included this concept of perfect in this platonic ideal, mm. this abstracted mm. static perfection. The, the, all of these sorts of things, these phrases that flow off our tongue because of our heavily Greek culture influenced worldview the thing about that concept of perfection uh is that it is precisely uh the buddhist concept of nothingness of that unchanging nothingness uh so if you want to reject that concept uh as being incorrect then you must also reject the concept of the static heaven um because they are really the same thing oh yeah so we'll save that for our revelation a revelation quarter. Good, good. This this is explicitly changing though, because God tells the animals to fill the whole earth. Yes, not just the animals and the plants. The the beasts in the sea they are multi- they are to multiply and fill the waters. So at least by God's assessment, at the end of this creation week, the, the creation is not finished. Yeah. And and so are yeah. the people. And I have taken that injunction very seriously. I will tell you. Um, (laughs) that's correct the other interesting thing to note on that concept is that it was already good on day one and not Mm. two notably and three etc etc before day seven before day six they were already already good good under this this sort of definition of good that you were talking about before even the creation week had ended now it's not just the our model of perfect is is culturally uh, what we imagine to be perfect is is influence. Even our concept of what's good. Um, and an example of this is my wife's study in the research she did on an early Australian composer, Alfred Hill. Uh, Alfred Hill had the misfortune of living a very long time, which, if you're an artist, means that you know what's once in favour goes out of favour. And he was he was once in the flavour of the month, and you know, broadly denounced towards the end of his life. Uh, what's so incredible about it all is he was praised and denounced for the same thing. <laughs> so he was widely praised early on in his career. And this is, this is Federation, pre-Federation Australia. So very early on where there wasn't institutions supporting musical 
you know culture in Australia. So Alfred Hill helped set up the Sydney Conservatorium, and and he set up institutions in New Zealand, and he he was a great mover and shaker in really early days. And he was he was praised for his original compositions, and what original meant. If you'd read the original reviews, uh, original meant uh, that it was obviously him. You could you could hear a song by Alfred Hill and say, "Oh, that's an Alfred Hill. That's that's him." He's got he's got his own original flavour, but uh, by the time you got to the sixties, the word original had changed, and to be original meant to be novel. Mm. So if you composed something in a similar style to music you had composed before, that was so unoriginal, which is mm. which is actually the the precise opposite meaning. The, the precise opposite. So he was he was denounced for a lack of originality later in his life, and must have been he funny. had not changed. What had changed was the aesthetic values of society. Ah, that was clearly the fall. <laughs> well, the point is, the point is that it's very dangerous. I think to use the word perfect. I, you know what, Cam? I think that I think that could be the 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 lesson from this podcast. The big lesson is be very careful with the word perfect, because when you, the listener, think perfect, you're thinking of a Greek ideal that the Hebrews who wrote Genesis would not remotely comprehend. You are not as perfect as the Hebrews. And and whatever God meant by the word good, it meant something that was changing, that was growing. Yeah, it absolutely did. And as I say, anyone who has an issue with that has to refer to the fact that the, the creation was commanded to multiply and fill the earth. And and that can't have happened in the seventh day yes. or in the sixth, the yeah. remainder and of the sixth also day. Also, by definition, it means the creation did not take place in this creation period. This seven-day narrative did not take place over the whole of the earth either, because something could not multiply to fill the earth if it already filled the earth. Yeah. yeah. So it was limited in scope. The, the I other can thing see about has. You, oh, we're, you go, so, we're all so excited about this, aren't we? <laughs> It's, it's, it, the other thing about this, though, is whichever, however you look at good slash perfect uh, and however you want to conceptualise that, what you mm. do need to recognise is that in Genesis 1, the creation is that. Mm. So there is no recognition yet in Genesis 1 of... that there is a rec- Even if one conceives of it as a recognition of goodness as a state from which improvement can occur. And mm. there is no reason why that can't be. We recognise things now in our world that are good, but that can be better. Mm. So even if one recognises that, that, what one does not see in Genesis 1 is a description of a world that is bad or falling. Oh, Ken. Or fallen. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, we do have to, if we've got any hope, at all of keeping up with the the lesson quarterly, we're going to have to move on through Genesis. Mm. But Ken, you don't have to go to the fall until you get to verse eighteen of chapter two. God I know. I'm going to go through chapter two, Lock. Okay, okay. So, so he's going to get yeah. there. This is going to be a three hour podcast. Go, Ken. No, no. It's going to be really quick. I'm going to abbreviate. The, the thing that I'm going to do is read out the points, and I'm going to use passages from the NIV. I won't read the entire. Chapter 2, but anyone who suspects I might be lying can go and read it for themselves. And because we're Adventists and we support a plain reading of the text, 
A plain reading of the text means we have full license to bring our own prejudices without acknowledging them. That's that's what a plain reading of the text means. And it's, it's a great license to have. So we're just going to adopt a plain reading. We're going to just see what happens. Because it says in, in chap, chapter 2, verse 4, When the Lord made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had appeared on the earth. And there's no plants uh, because there'd been no rain. And there were no people. And then streams came up and watered the whole surface. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, what's interesting is we maintain that man was made. God formed mankind, but he just spoke the animals into existence. If you look in chapter 1, God actually speaks man and the animals into existence. And in chapter 2, God forms them both out of the dust. And he does that before there are any plants. Before there's any plants. Mm. And then... Uh, it says the Lord had planted a garden in Eden and there he put the men he had formed and he made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, an important phrase that turns up later in this narrative. And then in the middle is the tree of knowledge of good and evil and a river flows from Eden. Uh, it's separated into four waters and it gives us the name of the, the waters and these rivers are, are rich in gems. Uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It's interesting, it was, it was perfect in inverted commas, but it required work. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, and then the Lord commanded the man, you get, you're free to eat of any tree except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then God says, and this is your verse, Locke, read it out. And this is verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then it clearly says that God had formed all the animals before Eve has been made. Adam is made. And then Adam names the animals, and but he doesn't find a suitable helper. And then God creates Eve. And uh, Eve is created out of one of the ribs uh, from Adam. And then we find our first little bit of poetry. It's a, Adam is moved when he sees Eve to speak in verse. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. End of chapter. So. Uh, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. End of chapter. No shame. That is significant in our uh, fallen topic. So, which act of creation is the crowning act of creation? What is the what is the cl- obvious climax? Why, Cam, it would appear to be the woman. It would absolutely be the woman i'm not surprised by that and the sabbath doesn't get any mention what well, i mean that's the initial thing we never read genesis 2 you notice that it never comes up no a couple of those verses are sometimes read at weddings ah right we never read it in its entirety and nobody ever takes the time to look at it and go the order of creation here is it's not even remotely close to genesis 1 it's a, it's an entirely different story. It's not just the details. It's, it's God's modus modus of operandi, modus operandi. It's his it's the emphasis, it's the climax point at the end of it. He molds things with his hands. He he makes woman last as the climax and the most important part of creation, the part that fulfills the existence of man. Um, and Sabbath yeah. isn't mentioned at all. The tree of life which isn't mentioned at all in genesis yeah. 1 and from which the whole story of the fall comes is right in the middle and god gets adam to name things instead in genesis 1 god does all the naming and also i noticed this is this is getting into nitty-gritty 
but the 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 rivers that he he makes he makes trees yeah. and then he makes then there are rivers and then he makes the garden and then there are the rivers that go through the garden and there's these mm. details about the gold and the amber and the the gemstones yeah. about the rivers what it's got what's that about i'm ill prepared i'm ill prepared but like you'll probably know more is this not an allusion to the sanctuary well um that is a really interesting idea and i i have encountered that but you're e- i'm equally ill prepared yes the sanctuary had gems. Uh, my vague reference is of similar types to what's listed here. Mm. And the sanctuary had embroidered trees and, and plants were embroidered into the fabrics mm. um, like a garden. And the sanctuary faced east like the, yeah. the Garden of Eden. But is that because of this account? Well, in, in, meaning, in meaning, I think there's a lot of sanctuary. You know, this is all about God dwelling with his people and... Later on in the Old Testament times, God comes and the sanctuary is the vehicle or the place in which he dwells with his people. But just from a, a sort of worldview point of thing, uh, this Luke details of the rivers don't flow through the garden. They flow out of the garden. Mm, that's true. Yes. What is being described here is Eden as the umbilicus tellurus, the navel stone of the earth, which was a fairly widespread picture about how the world was how the earth was you mean like the world's belly button the world's belly button exactly the the source of life on earth being this special place luke i'm i'm sure you may have read the um umberto echo book fuso's Uh, pendulum yes Uh, and um the umbilicus tellurus features in there quite a bit as being the the root of a whole lot of powers of of all sorts of quite advanced conspiracy theories about the Freemasons and the Jesuits and all manner of other people. So yes, yeah. the the idea of the navel stone, the belly button of the earth, features a lot in ancient uh, stories of the of the world, and it shows up here in Genesis two pretty vividly. Mm. Why do you think it is that Genesis 2 doesn't get looked at much? Is it just inconvenient? Uh, I don't know. It doesn't talk about Sabbath, Luke. It doesn't, and the well, Sabbath makes us different to other Christians, and we like, we like celebrating the things that make us different. Uh, it helps us reassure ourselves of our significance. Well, venerating women as the most important element of creation would make us different from other Christians too. There is one other <laughs> aspect that is, that is a bit important here. If you were writing this out as a children's story, here's my claim. Genesis 2 features slightly more grown-up themes. It's not just in children's stories that we don't talk about. It's, it's, mm. It doesn't come up in, in sermons. It doesn't, it's not, it's glossed. Like you said, we refer to specific verses in weddings, and mm. that's about the only time you ever hear of it. It, but the point is, this was an account that was for the children, uh, in the sense that it was to be passed on generation to generation. Um, yeah, yeah. The, Good point. the other thing that's really worth worth saying is that it was obviously the intent of the author for these two passages to sit side by side. There is um, an expectation on the part of the author that the second one will not subtract meaning from the first. That where there are conflicts, we are seeing extra meaning. What, we're, we're seeing addition, not subtraction. Mm, mm. 
And so, for instance, the chronology doesn't bother me too much. I think that, like in Genesis chapter 1, if God created cheese before he created trees, or if he created trees before he created cheese, or if he only created trees and let us create cheese, that that doesn't give me a reason to worship him. We, we worship him because of who he is. And if we thought more about that, it might do us more good than... So I, I, I completely agree with with everything you just said, Cam, and it is also my personal... It, it bothers me yeah. not a single bit that these narratives are different. But if you're taking the first narrative as literal and factual, how do you reconcile yeah. the second narrative? I don't know. I've chatted to people about this who, who have been in their very earnest and honest and well-motivated way attempting to. So, um, yes, there, there are... So you can see Genesis 2 as being an expansion of day 6. So all of Genesis 2 takes place in day 6. And you've got problems there about not yet having plants in the field. Uh, but is the plants in the field maybe referring to just one specific field that's in the garden, right? Not not to the, the world more broadly. Um, Luke, I see you're smiling. Um, yes. That's I am too, but it's an ex- you know, we all do these things yes, in places in our right. lives as we are yeah. trying to make sense of things that that stress us and in our mind we we reconcile yeah. them in certain ways. So yeah. very earnest and I think honest Christians yeah. have made these sorts of comments to to try and weave these together. And what I hear us doing is we're basically saying we're finding that a little bit unpersuasive because we are hearing the main point of these stories being something slightly different from just the well specific details we're looking for the the richer world setting kind of yeah. theme there's there's some broad ideas the genesis 1 god is powerful does a lot of talking and mm. things happen but in genesis 2 god is intimate yes and i'm mm. thinking of the passages that we read about in Isaiah in our previous discussions where where Isaiah says don't you know haven't you heard that god is is wonderful, he's enormous, he's bigger than you could ever know, he speaks and things happen. But don't think that just because he's big, he's going to ignore you. God is close and he's intimate and he helps the tired and the weary and the poor. And that that contrast is being spelled out in, in Genesis 1 and 2. What I really like about Genesis 2 is that God is a craftsman. He, he forms man with, out of dust with his hands. Mm. Mm-hmm. He designs and builds and crafts things in in a much more personal way, in, in like you said, Cam, in, in a much more intimate way than anything in Genesis one. I, I, look, I really like that, and and I wonder whether or not there's a connection to the fact that uh, when God came into the world through Christ, uh, Jesus was a carpenter, forming things with his hands, uh, doing things with his hands, creating things. Mm. And and indeed, I've uh, tried to see my life doing that, at least in one of my hobby slash leisure activities. It's not always leisure, I might say, but I'm, I'm building an aeroplane. And I see that as being uh, part of the work of God in the world, uh, doing something, mm. making something in the world. Mm. Uh, now, mm. uh, most of my life I live in the mind. Um, uh, and with words and speaking 
things. And, in, and indeed, the, the words that I speak have power. Um, uh, they come invested with the authority of the state, which uh, I always hesitate to say these things because sometimes that sounds incredibly arrogant. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a recognition of the, um, uh, the nature of, of what I do. When, when I speak words, uh, you are sentenced to imprisonment, uh, then that has a very physical effect on a person's life. Um, it results in them being, if they don't go willingly, uh, manhandled um, to leave to, for those words to be given a physical existence. Mm. Mm. And I think it's important living in a world like that, uh, that I do something else that creates in perhaps... Uh, a more Christ-like way, uh, mm-hmm. or perhaps an equally Christ-like way, if I can call it that. Mm. I would, I would like to come back. Just looking at the time, we do need to at least mention this idea of the fall because we've been talking a lot about creation, and yeah. we've we've questioned perfection. I was, I was thinking about that as well, Locke. And maybe the way we can do this is to sort of say, what is the state of affairs so far in the narrative at the end of? Chapter two. Where ah, are we can at? I go back? Can I go back a step and talk about the middle of chapter two? So chapter two, verse fifteen, because here we get a little hint. Chapter two, verse fifteen. Mm. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, first time, first mm. time the concept of evil has been introduced, I think. And so there we get a bit of a hint. So don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and well, evil. Kent, there's there's something even. There's something even right before then in verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Ah, so it needed watching over. Uh, There was some risk. There was some element. Well, I'd like to go even further back uh, (laughs) to the phrase at at the start of... By the way, this idea, this idea of going further back gives insight into the, the role Genesis played. You remember there's that passage where Christ, they're bickering with Christ about marriage. Mm, mm, and they said, well, well, Moses said this, and what about this, and what about this? Christ says, hey, I'm going to trump you. I'm going to pull out trumps. He pulls out the big cards. <laughs> he said, well, I'm going to go back to Genesis. Yeah. You, can't, you can't go further back than that. So there's a creation account, you know, has, has a certain um, significance Hmm. in the place it, it carries. And it's a functional significance. It should impact the way we make decisions today, which is why Lawrence Turner's book is called Back to the Present. Right at the start where God makes the gardens, that is to say the start of chapter 2, he makes the plants and the plants are, there's a description, the trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Hmm. And when he makes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and Adam and Eve come to it, what do they notice about the tree and I've always, I'd always thought this was a bit unfair. When they, when they come to see the tree, Eve notices that it's pleasing to the eye and good for food. And I'd always thought how terrible it was that God had created this tree to be so tempting. But in point of fact, the account is telling us that it's just like all the other trees. Hmm. Hmm. Also, hmm. It, he's actually made it in verse 9 so in, in, of chapter 2. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The tree's yeah. first mentioned there. So this was going to be my comment. I, I picked on verse 18 because it specifically used the words, it is not good. Mm. And those are words mm. out of the mouth of God, assessing what, his, what he is observing in creation. And that's in oh, stark that's contrast to, to what we've been seeing for the you know, seven-fold repeat mm. of good, climaxing in very good. So I was going to, in jest, kind of ask, when does the fall 
take place. And, and surely it takes place the moment God recognizes there is something that is not good. He declares it to be not good. Suddenly creation has fallen in God's esteem. Now, I say I'm doing this in jest. You played along incredibly well without knowing I was creating this game. You each went further back and found other definitional points at which you could, with some validity, argue that creation in the narrative has fallen in some sense from that point of very good, where it kind of finished the Genesis 1 account. So, yeah. Here's the interesting part of that log is that God is the only uh, agent in this narrative so far. He's the only one that does anything. He places the tree of good and evil in the garden. Nobody else puts it there. Mm. It doesn't Mm. come of itself or by some other actor. God places it there and makes it creation less good. Yeah, yeah, I mean... This is a very profound question. It's a big question. Why does he even make this tree? And of course, there's a huge, um, there's a huge amount of literature on this. There's a lot of thought. It features fairly prominently in, in um, the the Adventist Church sort of story worldview story of the world. But but this question of when the fall actually happens, I would like to contend, and and you know, listeners may may have their own answers to this. Is it at the point where Eve is tempted? By the serpent? Um, is it at the point where they actually eat the fruit? I think that's probably going, if we were to put out a survey, the mm. crunching of that fruit, the biting that, of the fruit is the, the point at which most people would identify it. But of course, death doesn't actually hit anything at that point in time. What about, is the fall at the point of first death recorded, which is where God kills animals to create clothes for them? When he's evicting them from the garden, he 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 gives them animal skin clothes. So at that point, death has well, occurred. Well, hang on, is is that the first death? Right. Okay. Let's sidestep that for the moment, because um, I think you, uh, it's the first death explicitly recorded in the narrative. Well, it's the first death of an animal, but plants can also die, and plants uh, for yeah. food is recorded much earlier in yes. the narrative than that. I know. I know. Uh, but it's the first spilling of blood. Um, which is a which is a significant symbolic gesture throughout the Old Testament. Um, is the fall the point at which they actually get evicted from the garden, or is the fall the point at which the first human being experiences death? Which, of course, in the Bible's narrative, is when Cain kills his brother Abel. Which, like Cain, Cain was not there in the garden, so that was Cain's no. fall. So, like, when did Cain's fall occur? When well, did... the, this is right. Well, but of course, the 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 good Protestant doctrine a... of original sin and inherited inherited sinful nature describes that one fairly fairly clearly. Cam, but what I'm trying to get at is the idea, which I feel is slightly pervasive. It's inescapable, at least, mm. from this story. Which is so often when we talk about fall, and the reason we're talking about fall, remember, is because we're trying to set the motivation for covenant. God is going to come with promise and with covenant to solve something. That's how it's so often described. And the thing that needs solving is clearly the fall, which has clearly happened in Genesis 3. That's how it's... I mean, my Bible has a heading, the fall, on Genesis chapter 3. So we were clearly wrong to to ascribe some of these features of Genesis 2 to anything like the fall. Mm. But remember, the fall is not a, a Genesis vocabulary. That's not what it's described in the text. And by, by trying to illustrate the 
the very slight absurdity of trying to pinpoint the point of the fall. Essentially, what I'm doing is actually questioning this this idea of a of a step change, of a, a singular event, a singular event that where you go from perfection to non-perfection. Firstly, we've questioned whether perfection is the right way to describe God's creation in the first place. It's clearly very good. Is perfection the right way to describe it? Certainly not the word used by Genesis. And then when we describe the fall. Now, I'll admit there is a very sharp step change in some senses. Luke, you pointed out that in Genesis 2, the story finishes with them being naked but not ashamed. Very quickly after the eating of the fruit, they are ashamed. They clothe themselves with the leaves of plants and they don't come when God calls their name. So without a doubt, without a doubt, this story in Genesis does describe some things changing in a step-like manner. But it's equally obvious to me that some things do not change in a step-like manner. When the serpent says, you shall not surely die, remember what God has said? God has said here in Genesis 2, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, it raises a really interesting question that, doesn't it? Because in the day, so that has a very clear meaning. I've got got an idea. My idea is that we need to do another episode on this, okay. and this will give this will give our listeners a whole week to inundate us with comments. Um, but I think that, in as much as any discussion of God's covenant and God's plan of salvation, you really do want to know the problem God's trying to solve. This is important. There's a reason the Bible starts with this stuff. Uh, independent of what the lessons chosen for us next week, let's let's continue on with a discussion of the fall. Yeah. And we can turn, so the, oh, uh, I have looked it up. The lesson for next mm. week is, a, it's called Covenant Primer, and it's trying to uh, give us a, a helpful framing of the idea of covenant. So I think let's do what you suggest, yeah. Cam. And let's pick up next week, continuing to yeah. explore this idea of the need for the covenant. And maybe along the way next week, we will be able to cover a little bit of of some of the background information. For example, we've thrown the word around already this episode a lot, but what mm. even does covenant mean? Yeah. I'll, I'll have some interesting, well, what I hope will be interesting uh, thoughts about covenant. I, I, can't I can hardly wait, Ken, but, <laughs> but I will have to. Here's something I'm going to throw in as a, as a closing thought. The different creation accounts provide different emphases, and the climax of the first is Sabbath. The climax of the second is the creation of Eve. Both of those are about relationship. And when when God says in Genesis 1, he said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, there is reference made in this account that um, both genders are created equal before God. They equally bear his image that, that, that there is value in male and female. Because it says that God created them in his own image, in the image of God created them male and female. And then the story goes on. Um, given the history, the long history of, uh, you know, one of the ways in which our failure to live up to the ideal is most evident is in, by, not, not in every case, but uh, the treatment of women by men has not been very good. And nothing can be argued from Genesis except... Women are so important to God. And that I think that the author of Genesis 2 deliberately separates the creation of Adam and Eve and puts all this extra drama in 
you know, Adam's looking for a life companion and he goes through all the animals and it's really stretched out. And then, you know, it's a really sharp point at the top, um, at the climax, when, when, when Eve is made. And Eve is made out of a rib. It's not out of Adam's head or out of his foot because, um, you know, feet is pretty low and if you're washing feet, that's the lowest servant in, the, in a Jewish household. Um, and the head's very precious, which is why, you know, it's looked after extra. But it's taken out of Adam's rib. Everything about this story is really stressing that God's creation is best, let's not say perfect, but let's say it is best when we are living in harmony, Hmm. when we really see value in each other, when we see value in God's created world, when we see value in God, there's, there's the creation one says that God cares in the finishing with Sabbath, that we, we experience relationship with him. But Genesis two says he also cares equally as much that we live in positive relationships with each other. Mm. And where we are working to restore relationship and where we're working to see value in other people, we are working to restore Eden. Hmm. And surely that has to be the backdrop against which we discuss covenant. Okay, good. Uh, join us next week. We'll leave you there. We this is, It's very fun. It may take us a couple of weeks to get out of Genesis. I'd, I'd like to follow it through at least as far because there's a lot of covenant stuff to talk about with the flood. Cam, I'll, I'll be I'll be honest with you. If we get to the end of these thirteen weeks and we're still in Genesis, I will be quite pleased. <laughs> oh, good. In, indeed, one okay. one might expect that because um, uh, I was reading recently a book that suggested perhaps yeah. one ought ought dedicate five years uh, to the study of the Book of John uh, as a devotional exercise. And I thought, wow, now that's a really high standard to set, isn't it? Given that John is many less chapters than Genesis, perhaps uh, uh, we might be here for a bit longer than just these 13 weeks. Well, I think there's a lot in there, even though it's a book we refer to often. And I've had some new ideas, and I hope our listeners have had too. If any of our listeners, if any of you have any comments, send them through to us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, feel sh- uh, free to share this podcast with your friends or your enemies as you see fit. And uh, we look forward to you joining us for our next discussion.